This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Welcome again. I'm Khadija. Continuing our focus on the UK this episode, we're really pleased to be joined by Dr. Khadija Al Shayal, an associate fellow at the Al Walid Centre, University of Edinburgh, specialising in contemporary British Muslim history. Her research interests lie in the political and cultural activism, advocacy, and representation of Muslims and other minorities in the UK. In this episode, Khadija relives her experience of the day of the 7 7 bombings in London. We draw on her knowledge of the history of Muslims in Britain to trace the changing relationship between Muslims and the state before and after 9-11. She also tells us about what impact 7-7 had on counter-terrorism policy, aggressively profiling Muslims and using tools such as the Prevent Programme to turn aspects of ordinary Muslim life into security threats. We finish with a discussion about the dark legacies of empire, what identity politics really means, and whether we can close the chasm of rights inequalities to claim citizenship and humanity on an equal footing while honouring and keeping intact our Muslim identities. New episodes of Muslim in Plain Sight come out on Mondays every other week. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate to us. Just click the link in the description. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or share your favourite episodes on social media. Please also encourage your family and friends to listen. It's our last episode of 2021, and so I want to take a moment to share how doing this project has proven unexpectedly therapeutic for us, thanks in no small part to all of our amazing guests so far, and it would give us the greatest happiness to share that feeling and that healing with our fellow brothers and sisters. We ask that you keep us in your du'as, keep on listening, and join us again in the new year, inshallah. And now I will leave you with my fellow cad. I'm Anissa. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khadija. And today we are delighted to be joined by another Khadija. <laughs> this should be interesting. Welcome, Khadija. Jazakallah khair for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And assalamu alaikum to everybody who's listening and to you guys as well. Alaikum salam. We're so excited to have you here. Likewise. <laughs> and again, in the interests of full disclosure, Khadija and I met a very long time ago. Oh gosh, how old was I? 12? Yeah, we must have been. Oh, I have a story. Shall I tell you the story? Okay. (laughs) I love how we're meeting all of like Khadija's childhood friends one by one. This is great. (laughs) So you know how kids go off to summer camp and all of that. Uh, Back in, what was it, 1996, Khadija and I met in Muslim summer camp and (laughs) it was just like a proper camp. You had tents, you went away, you had activities. I hated them. And I don't know if you remember this, Khadija. It was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Jog my memory, please. (laughs) Everyone else had been herded into the conference hall because it was windy and stormy and 
the marquee was cold. I insisted on staying in the marquee, of course. Anyone who knew me then knows that's exactly the kind of thing I would do. Sorry, what's a marquee? <laughs> oh, those big tents <laughs> where everyone put down their sleeping bags and, uh, you know, okay. and it was just, it was it was a good night. I think that was one of the best nights of sleep I've ever had, actually. Really? Yeah. Something for you. So your your story about you and Khadija is about when you were alone and no, you were no, sleeping? No, it was about the whole camp. It was just, I, it was the first time I met Khadija. We were with our other friends and those are friendships that we have to this day. And they are, you know, they're very beloved to me. And, and likewise myself, definitely. And that was how we met because Khadija and I were from, were from different ends of London. Mm-hmm. So we would only meet when we went to these things, right? And it was just, oh, they were good days. I think we haven't seen each other since... University, maybe. Yeah, undergrad. Because we ended up doing our undergrad at the same... Different campuses of the same university. So we bump into each other quite a bit sometimes. But yeah, gosh, those days. The 1990s. (laughs) I can say a lot about the 1990s. (laughs) Right. I also, on this side of the ocean, (laughs) I also attended those Muslim summer camps. So it's very nostalgic. In the 1990s. When I was around 11 and 12 years old. Those were really special times, actually, because those years, you know, when you think back, we were, you know, we were in high school and uh, those teenage years, I think I was really anchored by those intermittent but fairly regular gatherings that we'd get together with others Mm. like Khadija and, you know, this group of friends that you, you mentioned. Not to mention that it was also a way of meeting Muslims from different parts of the country. Yeah. You know, we were meeting sisters from Glasgow. Right. We were meeting sisters from Manchester. We were meeting them from Birmingham. And just meeting people in that way allowed us to broaden our own I- identities Absolutely. as, you know, Muslims yeah, growing yeah. up in England or, or in the UK even. Yeah. Oh, they were good days. I miss them. They don't do them anymore. No, That's sad. It's a, different, it's a different world. And I think a lot of it has to do with actually the events of the past couple of decades. 9-11, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, there are other things. And I think, you know, it was really interesting listening to, if I may say, um, the first episode that you guys had, when you talk about how there is this coincidence of the fallout and the post 9-11 world, but also technology. And mm. both of those together mm. have really converged in really interesting ways to impact our lives and to also define and maybe contain in some ways, but also to open up the possibilities and the parameters of, you know, of who we can be and how we can be that. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you know, those days, if we're talking about the 1990s, you know, we didn't have mm. any of the technology that we take for granted and we use like every minute of our lives today. Yeah. Um, so it was a completely different world. Right. And so those small, like three or four day periods where you could like be in intense sisterhood with your yeah. friends was so precious. And complete isolation from the world. I remember yeah. we'd, we'd be on the coach home and we'd be like, you know, it was almost like back to earth, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Right. Yeah. Because you didn't have a way to call your like parents unless it was an emergency. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have spoken to my parents. Yeah. yeah. I think I actually remember on one of those camps that the Queen Mother had died while we were away. So we came back oh, and we're like, oh, the Queen Mother. Like, <laughs> you know, like these big things would happen. Were you at the one that was during um, uh, Diana's funeral? The weekend was of Diana's funeral. I don't know if you're wow. at that one. It was, it was actually in North London in, in Stoke Newington. So you didn't find out until you came back? No, we actually watched it. <laughs> <laughs> so not in total isolation. <laughs> we watched the funeral from there. We were sitting in like oh, this wow. dingy basement of a, of a house mosque. Mm. And we were just crowded around this little TV watching uh, I think the funeral. I wasn't at that one. <laughs> <laughs> was, I'm never going to forget that weekend. <laughs> 
you know what's funny is that I think probably like, we might all have this in common is that our parents wouldn't necessarily have let us hang out with everyone or go to certain places and do stuff like that by ourselves but when I was with you guys my parents were like go like yeah. go and godspeed they like it didn't matter because <laughs> they trusted that environment so much that even though you were taking like these little 11 12 13 year olds to the other side we of the so country young. we were so yeah. young i mean my son is is 12 and i <laughs> would I you let him go <laughs> I, my mum used to just chuck me onto a yeah. coach and be like off you go <laughs> like who would you trust now to take your kids like that and there was no guarantee or safety net there was no like you know, DBS checks or oh yeah, <laughs> forms to be signed <laughs> or like emergency medication. <laughs> God knows, there was none of that. Yeah. It was just like it bundled. was really a different yeah. world. You know what's funny about because we've reached this point in this series that we've spoken to quite a few people now, and it's always such a great opportunity to sort of get nostalgic about that kind of world that no longer exists mm, in right. all these little different ways like when we were speaking for example with um willow wilson it was about like writing mm -hmm. emails to your friends yeah you know in a way that we no longer do <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah so speaking of those uh, should we call Halcyon them the good days. old days yeah <laughs> <laughs> so who were you on the 10th of september 2001 yeah oh gosh wow it's really funny um how you know listening to your podcast and and just ha having this sort of conversation going on in my head and knowing that we'd be having this conversation you know it's the first time I really stopped to think about that in a really strange way because it's just been it's sort of everything's just sort of happened one thing after another but so 10th of September I, I had just turned 19 a few days before and I had just finished my A-levels I just got my A-level results that summer so A-levels being sort of the exam that you take in England to get into university so I'd, I'd done very well, alhamdulillah, and I was on a high. I was sort of like feeling like the world's my oyster. You know, I'd worked really hard and reaped the rewards <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and you already um, had your university place by then, didn't you? I had you? my university place and I was very excited about it. And I was really looking forward to that. And I was enjoying the summer, catching up with friends, getting to know people. I, I was sort of really thrown in. I mean, I had friends who were already at university where I was going. And one of them being Jasmine, who you had in your previous episode. We all went so, to Kings. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jasmine and I, uh, yeah, I mean, we go back a very long way. I was excited about, I mean, we, we ended up doing the same course. So she was a year older than me. She still is a year older than me. <laughs> that hasn't changed. And, um, <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> Physics is still working. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so she, she's a year older than me. And so she was introducing me to people that she'd already met and putting me through some kind of induction, I guess. Um, so that was what was going on in my mind. I was just really looking forward to the possibilities and the opportunities that I would have at university. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then nine eleven, right? So um, the next day, I suppose, uh, the eleventh. I I remember it very well because you know it's like one of those things you remember exactly where you were when it happened. So I was in Regis Park Mosque actually. Oh, what a place and, to <laughs> hear the news! I'm surprised that I would be in a mosque teacher. <laughs> no, I mean for those who don't know, Regis Park Mosque is the London Central Mosque. It's like the central mosque for pretty yeah. much the whole country yeah i mean i think people use the word flagship sometimes i don't mm, know yeah but then east london mosque kind of claims yeah, that now they, as well. yes, so i don't know it's a bit, mm. uh, but it's, it's a very big mosque it's a very big mosque mm. very historic so i was there with a couple of friends my mum used to work there actually and this is really interesting because that played a role in my experience of 9-11's fallout because she was in the thick of a lot of stuff working mm. in a very public facing role in that mosque so she got very very busy 
and obviously that impacted on our family. Yeah, that summer, I remember spending quite a bit of time there, partly because it was, it was central and I would sometimes, you know, spend a bit of time with my mum and then from there go and do whatever I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So I was with a couple of friends and we were, I think we prayed and we were chatting. And then I remember one of the, um, the guys who worked there, caretaker maybe I don't know um just came up to us and he was like did you hear the news did you hear what happened and he told us yeah two planes have you know hit the uh, twin towers and um and there was as I mean there was a lot of rumor and he was like and I don't know what else is happening maybe this has happened maybe I remember it being really hazy and vague and then he's like and people are saying it was Hamas and I was like what and then he was yeah and I think it's this and I think it's that and he was like adding spice to the story I think I don't know where he's coming from and obviously we didn't have access to a television you know we barely had like um, Nokia phones right mm. and we didn't you know it's, it's something that's really interesting actually because I think our consumption of the news was different because we didn't you know now when you hear something you straight away log on mm. to whatever device you've got and you're like let me hear let me check social media what people are saying on the ground but we actually processed it we we're like okay that's crazy that's weird and i i guess we kind of told ourselves we'll hear more in the evening news or when we mm. get hold of the papers tomorrow right like we didn't drop everything and and run to see if we can get to a television mm. so i mean it shocked us i mean we didn't mm. obviously it sounded crazy but i don't think i digested the gravity of it and the mm. extent to which i mean nothing was mentioned i think when as far as i recall anyway about deaths though that's an obvious thing now that you, now that i mean it's, it's like, like mm, right i agree with you because it was i mean i didn't even know what the twin towers were when i first heard the news mm-hmm. I was like what are they and it wasn't until i saw the video of it on the news that i realized what a big deal it was absolutely yeah because otherwise it's abstract it's like okay mm. this is obvious people everyone's talking about it it's so obviously it's a big deal but yeah. you don't fully i don't mm. know you also kind of think that if you don't know what it is, it can't be that big, right? Yeah, perhaps, With yeah. your kind of, your youthful omniscience, mm. which is actually just ignorance in disguise. No, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is that is mm. something that definitely plays into how we process information, right? So we talked about it. I remember we talked about it and we were just like, oh yeah, what does this mean? What's it going to, you know? But it was only that evening, I think, when I got home and I saw the news and I saw things uh, for myself that, yeah, we realised, oh gosh, what on earth? is this what's what does it mean and obviously by then there was all this mm. talk about islam and muslims and yeah i mean within hours obviously mm. we uh, absolutely began to appreciate how this would be impacting our lives on a daily basis so what was it like then to start university just like what two weeks later like how do you yeah. look back on your early student life now i think my entire existence was absolutely defined by 9-11 and the fallout and the war, you know the war that came out of that walls that came out of that that wasn't even i don't think we had the space to even think about how that was happening mm-hmm. we just um we just had to get on with it i think that the, the the moments we found ourselves in there was such a sense of being under siege of being vulnerable in in many ways on, on a personal level on a communal level on an institutional level what kind of experiences stand out the most in your memory now like for example among the things that you went through you had the activism you had watching this build up to war. You, of course, were living your university life in that time as well. So you were studying, you had friendships, and perhaps you had like unfriendships or even enemies. Mm. What kind of memories of that do you have now? Is there anything that you can recall that really stands out? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I've always been aware of is that um, on, a, on a very personal level, I guess, during my school career um, at, uh, in high school, I was, I was very studious. I was very focused on my studies. Not that I didn't have interests outside, 
of my studies, but I sort of I had a very focused determination that I wanted to do well because I wanted to achieve things. I wanted to be able to do things with with what I was learning. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember very vividly on my my first year at university finding it so difficult to concentrate on my studies. I just I couldn't. I I was coasting a lot, and that carried on throughout my undergrad because of because of everything else that was going on. I, I just felt it was relentless. What was that? Some of that, everything else. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm being very vague. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Because yeah, to... I feel like we know the answers yeah. to that, but perhaps but spelling not it out. Does. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But what, like, could you tell us in your own words, especially for those who don't? Yeah, I mean, I think there was this onslaught of news all the time. It was like nonstop. Uh, whether it was events on the sort of global scale or whether it was British politics and the tone and the language and the behaviour that was being adopted by the new Labour government, Mm -hmm. whether it was everyday aggressions that people were facing as they went about their daily life. I say everyday, but that's actually a huge disservice. So I was hearing, especially in, in the Muslim news media, so there were um, a couple of Muslim printed news outlets that you know I, I would read mm. very regularly, but also through my friends that I would speak to um, about people being attacked in the street, about mosques being attacked, about people being discriminated against, um, about people being in, in very dangerous situations. And these weren't new to, to my mind anyway, because I my memory went back to, you know, I lived through, um, as, as did you guys, the first Gulf War and plenty of other moments in history when Muslims were scapegoated and were demonised mm-hmm. in public discourse and in political uh, spaces and, um, and in the media, you know, how we were impacted by that. So it wasn't by any stretch the first time I'd encountered Islamophobia, but the intensity of it and the relentlessness of it was really very palpable. It was a different level. Yeah. And then there was this whole really strange, now I think about it, but at the time we didn't really question it because we, it was just so urgent, but really strange wave of like everybody discovering Muslims in their midst and putting us on the back foot and asking us to explain ourselves and us having to do that job 24-7, you know, like yeah. who are you, why, you know, are you violent, is the Quran a hate scripture, are mosques training grounds for God knows what, yeah. that was like everywhere, um, this suspicion this is like what Anissa was saying in one of our previous episodes, mm. that you're held at arm's length under a microscope, right? Mm. That's a perfect way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you have to be so present. All the time, switched on. While not being yeah. too close. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there was no refuge. There was no. There was nowhere you could go and just be. Yeah, because after that, there was this whole culture of, and and it grew from that time, having that culture of having to condemn. Yeah. Like, whatever happened, you'd always have to be the first to stand up and condemn. And I feel like that's something that affected us in a really... In a way, I can't quite... I haven't unpacked this yet, but I think it's one of those things that people our age now are sort of saying, no, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm tired. I Why do I need to condemn this? Yeah. And it was something I remember at the time that just always made me angry. Like, even then, I'd be like, why do I have to condemn this? I think I might actually have gone in the opposite direction, actually. I've begun to do the condemning now. I'm like, <laughs> by the way, I don't agree with this. <laughs> I just spent all of those years. I, again, this is something Anissa and I've talked about in previous episodes. It's just the anger. And I mm. was so angry in all of that time. And I'm always surprised when there are people who are just not as angry, <laughs> but more active, I guess, also. Maybe that's why I was so angry. Yeah, I think if you were able to express that anger in action, depending on what your circumstances were and what position you were in and how much safety you had to be active in that way 
maybe some of that anger got kind of sublimated through the activism. But if you've had to kind of sit on that anger and not do anything and not say anything about it for like 15, 20 years, then obviously Mm. it's going to still be very strong and very present. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, we all process these experiences in different ways. And those are influenced by who we are, our context, the support networks we have or don't have, you know, our perspectives, our prior experiences or or, or sort of parallel experiences in life. There's there's so many, there's no one way to experience this and there's no one emotion, emotional response or intellectual response. Totally. And I think that's one of the sort of richnesses of of these conversations that you guys have that really sort of opens the door to exploring how different people have lived and experienced and processed these moments. 100%. But I would say actually on this whole um, drive to explain Islam and Muslims. I mean, I, I do critique it and I do feel uncomfortable with it. Now, with hindsight, I think at the time there was less space to do that because things were just so urgent. But also I think I want to acknowledge that part of it speaks to the generosity of spirit. I mean, part, maybe we can say naivety as well. But there was a generosity of spirit among our, you know, the generation just a little bit older than us who yes. were at the helm of community organisations and who were at, mm. the, at the face of our community at that time that they had so much patience, actually. And sure, I, I'm not absolving them of critique at all. There is a lot that we can unpick. But the amount of patience and fortitude that they showed constantly, you know, mm. explaining and explaining again and opening our doors to people and sharing and, you know, that takes a lot of strength mm. and stamina I wonder if that's because, in some part, due to them taking their belonging in this society less for granted, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't, because we were born here, we grew up here. We have a sense of identity that's very uh, rooted in having grown up here. Like, we haven't come as outsiders. We began as insiders, right? So to have that threatened, to have this idea that it can be taken away from you, well, that's like saying something that's mine and was mine from the beginning is up for being taken away but like it's not though because it's mine why is it even open to take so much umbrage yeah exactly because it's like this is our birthright yeah the sense of ownership is different Mm. right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's very true and we and also i think not just the ownership but we have every right to define and to refashion and to play a role in Mm. sort of the evolution of what it means to belong to be part of Mm. whatever it is that we're talking about here because i think even that (laughs) is open to discussion and, and definition so um yeah so you know you had your beginning of your undergrad bracketed on one side by 9-11. And if I'm mm-hmm. calculating the timings right, which I might not be because I'm not familiar with the UK system, at the end of your undergrad is around the time when 7-7 happened, right? Which is the London bombings in 2005. Is that correct? Kind is that of. like a four-year program or how No, it was a three-year program that I did. Oh, um, okay. And then I did a master's degree straight after. So, so it was after your master's, right? Yeah, well, the master's, it was actually sort of as I was writing my dissertation. So the master's was a full year, full calendar year. So 7-7 happened during the summer of mm. 2005 when I was writing my, my master's thesis. What was your master's in, if you don't mind sharing? So the undergrad, my, I did my undergrad in history and my, my master's was in something called legal and political theory, which I found myself working in through courses that I'd done in the history of intellectual thought. And where did you do it? I did at UCL. So I switched to the enemy. This is really relevant. <laughs> it's very relevant. Uh, geographically, it's also relevant because... Um, yeah, that, that's what I mean, geographically. Absolutely, yeah. yeah so my campus, the building that I was in, so UCL is quite a disparate campus. So um, it's it's made up of clusters of different buildings mm. around an area called Euston in central London. And the building that I was based in was across the road from Tavistock. Well, it was in Tavistock Place, 
which is just, I think, perpendicular to Tavistock Square, where one of the bombs went off on a bus. Oh. So um, I, yeah, again, I have very vivid memories of that day because even though it was during the summer and we were out of Were you on campus that day? I was because I, I was, oh, wow. that summer I was working part-time in the university department um, doing like some research mm-hmm. assistance. So I would go in, I think, twice or three times a week to our building for my job. So that was one of those days. I think it was a, was it a Tuesday or Thursday? Thursday. 9-11 was a Tuesday. Yes, it was. Yeah. So that day I was, was running late and I usually would get the tube from Ealing Broadway where I lived and, and go to Houston Station from there. Yeah. So when I got into the station, I was sort of running in because I was late and then I saw there were no trains. And because it's Ealing Broadway is at the end of the line, right? So there's always two trains waiting, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where, you know, they're waiting to mm-hmm. fill up on passengers and for their, their departure time to arrive, right? So it's not that they're passing through, but there were no trains. Or I think there was one train and it was empty and it wasn't, it was very clear that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, the ticker screen thing as well was, wasn't working. And I was like, what's going on here? And, but I didn't have time to think about it. So I just got onto the, I was going to say Royal Mail. It's not called Royal Mail. What's it called? <laughs> British Rail? <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not, not getting sent by Elvis. <laughs> Sorry, I've been out of the UK for too long. <laughs> so, so just across the platform, there's a train that goes to Paddington Station. And I was like, let me just get on that. It's 10 minutes to Paddington and I'll find a way of mm. moving on from there. So I, I jumped onto that train. I think I caught the last one before everything stopped. Um, because when I got to Paddington, it was chaos. It was just, it was crazy. There was people not knowing what to do, where to go. And there was just so many people. There were so many people. And because it was, I was running late, I was surprised. Because it was rush hour, right? Well, this is it. Yeah, it was. I think it was around 9.30. So it wasn't the, the peak of rush hour. It was still mm. morning. But it was uncharacteristically busy for that time. And everybody, and you know all the like the station guards, they had they were on their walkie-talkies and, and they had like people waiting to talk to them. And it was just really manic. And every time I asked someone what's going on, they were like, oh, I don't know. I think there's you know, an electricity problem or who knows? Nobody knows what's happening, basically. So I was like, whatever, I'll just see if I can get a bus. So I walked out the station. And again, I remember the pavements just being chock-a-block. And it didn't occur to me what, what happened. So I tried to get on a bus. Again, the buses were packed. I was barely managing to get on a bus when I got a call from my brother who was living abroad. And he'd heard the news. So I had no idea. Huh. And he's like, go home now. Um, he'd probably seen it. I don't know what TV Was your brother already a journalist at that point? Oh, no, this is another brother. Oh, different brother. (laughs) (laughs) This is my older brother. Um, No, he's not a journalist. He's a lawyer. So he was like, go home. Where are you? Go home now. Go home. Just go home. And I was was like, what's going on? And he goes, oh, yeah, there's been a bomb. There's been a bomb. Just go home. Where are you? I was like, I can't go home because nothing's working. And I don't know. Where's this bomb? And, you know, he didn't really know much either. But he was just like telling me to go home, basically. Mm. Um, And I couldn't go home. And Mm. I finally got to our building and um, everybody was standing outside and and that was, yeah, you know, began to put pieces together. And um, by then, all the mobile networks had completely dropped, if you guys remember. Nothing was working. Why is that? They just weren't working. I was trying to call my mom and my dad and just let them know that I was okay. Was that a planned shutdown? No, I think it was just the pressure of everybody trying to make oh. phone calls at the same time. Oh, um, so yeah. nobody, obviously there was no smartphones. So nobody right. was getting information that way, right? You needed right. to sit down to, there wasn't even, wireless wasn't that widespread. Though Blackberries did exist then. I do recall. Yeah, but they weren't, I mean, I, I didn't but have But they weren't in common use. Yeah, they were yeah. mostly for like corporate big wigs back then. It wasn't yeah. like right. something commonly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I remember for a good while, I think it must have been like half an hour to one hour where networks were just down. You just couldn't call anybody. Mm. So yeah, buildings were closed, obviously. And as I say, because we were down the road from Tavistock Square where the bus blew up, people had seen, I hadn't, but people had seen it and um, were affected by it. It was just um yeah, there was trauma in the air, mm. and 
Yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. I remember spending that day once we finally had access to university buildings. We couldn't go home because there was no network to take us home. There was no transport network because that was completely shut down. So I remember logging onto the university computer and just trying to catch up with what was going on. And I had a friend who was on another campus who was stuck there. And it's funny how you guys were talking about sending emails because we would just we spent that day sending emails to each other. <laughs> and just sort of sharing our experiences and checking on each other and speculating really about what was going to happen because we were processing obviously the response of the government to what had happened and the news that was coming out about what had happened and who was involved and how and you know how it is in the aftermath of things like this where there's so much speculation and things come out in dribs and drabs and then you get people speculating and talking about you know what they think things are going to look like and so yeah that was how i processed the events of that day and I'm grateful that I had that friend that we that we could open up to one another and really feel supported. So, yeah, I think that I mean obviously 77 was really close to home. Um in in different you know 911 was was close to home in certain ways I think and you know ways that I think you both appreciate and you know the the way that it impacted us in the UK not just because of our sense of proximity to the US but the way that our governments responded. Yeah, it was close to home, but I think 7-7 was really searingly close to home, you know, physically, emotionally. Mm. And I think I had also, you know, I'd grown. It had been a few years. And I think I had the experience of those few years that sort of shaped the way I responded and processed those events too. And how did that, you know, like, I think for us here in the US, at least my own, from my own perspective, I don't think that there was much, I mean, other than us just being very you know, shocked and horrified by all of what we saw coming out of, you know, in the pictures and the, and the coverage of the London bombings in 2005. I think for us as a nation, it wasn't really any, nothing really changed for us in our daily lives. You know, we were still at war, you know, in Afghanistan and in Iraq, nothing changed there. We were still living under this kind of post 9-11 surveillance of the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Not really a lot changed in the political rhetoric because it was still going on from what we had what had been happening for the last four years. But I can imagine that for you in the UK um, and generally in Europe, I'm guessing that there was a lot that changed, right? Especially in terms of like the relationship of Muslims and the state. Definitely. So could you tell us a little bit about how that changed after 7-7 and how it might have been different from what happened yeah. after 9-11? I think after 9-11, you know, if, if we look at Muslim representative organizations and, and activism, they were very quick to make all the right noises. And I say that, sorry, that sounds really cynical. They, it was It was heartfelt. You know, people were mm. appalled and shocked and really scarred by what happened. And they they appreciated the need to say that publicly, mm-hmm. loudly, consistently. And they, and they appreciated how much was at stake for them mm. and their communities. But they were also at a stage, really interesting stage in their evolution, where they had finally managed to get the ear of the government. And this is something, if you go back a few decades, for, for several decades, um, Muslim spokespeople and activists, it's something they really, they'd, they'd craved. They'd really wanted to be able to have access to government ministers and to influence policy directly in ways that would address experiences of inequality that they were living through. So we can talk about that in more detail if you want. But um, but that was where they were at 9-11. And they really wanted to preserve that. So um, we saw that sort of desperation to preserve it in a really interesting moment when the government decided to go to war 
um, in Afghanistan, and the largest um, Muslim representative body, the Muslim Council of Britain, hesitated before it opposed the war. It took a while before they actually came out oh, uh, wow. to oppose. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons why they did that is, well, the main reason why they did that is because they didn't want to lose the gains that they'd made. They were chummy with new labour, and they did not want to lose that because they could see that there are benefits in having that seat at the table. And so they took a good few weeks, I think maybe two, three weeks before, you know, so you had other Muslim organisations um, and Muslim voices who had got into coalition with, you know, so not necessarily mm-hmm. Muslim organisations, but Muslim activists who got involved in various other coalitions. There were plenty of coalitions that were st- starting up at that time, um, being very vocal and saying, you know, how can we how can we support this? We have to oppose it. This is unjust. This is unfair. I'm picking the government's argument. Where's the evidence? What's it going to achieve? Blah, blah, blah. And the NCB was silent. And they eventually realised that, yeah, okay, we must. So they they eventually did oppose the war. But I think that was always something that was, and continues to be on their record kind of thing. People aren't going to forget Mm. that. And what happened then is that they, their their relationship with the government cooled after that. They absolutely cooled. Um, And they still had a relationship, but it definitely cooled. So during the sort of intervening period between these two attacks, um, there was a lot of, as as you guys well know, there's always a lot of, commentary and analysis about what we might call the Muslim problem in, in Britain or in Europe or in, in the West, right? What um, do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is, you know, where do they belong? Where do their loyalties lie? What does the Ummah mean for, for these these people? Um, <laughs> if we can call them that. <laughs> and, um, Too real. So even that was at question, right? In question, whether yeah, you like could even Muslims accept human, them as right. humans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there were, there were plenty of commentators in... In, in newspapers and journals and magazines on on television and radio who who absolutely would call that into question and and would would call our humanity into question in various ways in various coded and more direct ways um you know there was the, the term uh londonistan okay oh God, yeah. which was banned what does about that mean if you wouldn't mind <laughs> saying good question so londonistan <laughs> became um the title of melanie phillips's book as um, oh, you might God, know her. um melanie phillips is a is a very right-wing commentator who, um, she's like a Daily Mail columnist, right? She's kind of lost it. Yeah, um, and, and and other papers. I think she writes in the Jewish Chronicle as well. Is she a bit like Anne Coulter over here? If you're familiar with Anne Coulter, I don't think I'm familiar enough. Um, I, I know who you're talking about, but I'm, it's difficult for me to to say for sure because I'm not familiar enough. Mm-hmm. But um, she's quite outlandish um, and provocative. But she's she wasn't the only one making that argument. There were plenty of others like Douglas Murray and Michael Gove even um, uh, who were saying basically that London has long been a haven for dissidents with an Islamist, whatever, again, that's a term that what we mean by it. It needs so but... much unpacking. Right? <laughs> oh my god, right. that term makes me... I hate it. Yeah. Does it make your skin crawl? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea being that, you know, London has been a safe haven for these people and we've let them live unchecked among us <laughs> and they have been getting on with all kinds of underground, um, subversive and very dangerous activities. So, so this was something that was definitely bubbling away and going on. And I think the response of Muslim voices at that time was denial. Um, so this is the intervening period between 9-11 and 7-7. That there's nothing wrong with our discourses. There's nothing wrong with our gatherings and what's being said in our khutbahs. It was resistance to even the idea that we needed to think about or analyse what was going on. Now, after 7-7, the government was very, very... I mean, you know, there's, a, there's the sort of iconic now phrase that Tony Blair used... A speech I think he gave in, I think it was in Parliament. He he basically made this proclamation that the rules of the game have changed, right? And that's been immortalised in many ways. And what did um, that mean? What he meant by that was that, you know, we had terrorism laws, we had counter-terrorism laws, and they go back far earlier than 
in 2001. But the new measures, harsher measures, less tolerant measures, uh, more draconian measures, basically, well, it's not a word he would use, obviously, he would say, we, you know, we have no tolerance <laughs> mm-hmm. for activities that would render us unsafe, basically. So this is all coming out in the name of security, right? What that signaled is what eventually became the um, Terrorism Act uh, 2006, which included clauses like the glorification of terrorism, making that a crime, right? So what that meant was that if something was deemed to support verbally or vocally or in, in gesture towards the glorification of terrorism, now become a crime. Um, and that meant that discourse, the way that people spoke, was very much under the radar and could be incriminated, right? So It's basically um, um, turning speech into a crime, yeah. which goes against all of the sort of liberal Western democracies' claims about having free speech as, yeah. a, as a fundamental right of their societies. But it's, it's in the name of security. So you have this balancing act where it said, okay, this is a cost worth paying because right. our lives and security are at stake. I mean, you know, you guys, civil liberties organizations constantly warned us that our liberties are being chipped away at mm-hmm. with every new measure that's being introduced. And that's not just things about how we express ourselves. It's also, you know, the way that we travel, you know, the stop and search uh, rights that, mm-hmm. that the police have, um, detainment without evidence, um, all kinds of things and, and surveillance, right? Torture. Torture, right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just trying to go... I'm, I'm not sure if I've answered the question that you posed initially. You were asking how things changed for Muslims after 7-7. How the relationship between Muslims and the state changed. I think you did a really good job of answering that. Thank you. But if you have anything to add. Yeah, I was just going to say that after 7-7, what happened was there was much more upfront acknowledgement from Muslim organizations uh, about there being a problem in our communities. And not all organizations, but I think organizations that were at this interface with the state. Whereas in the intervening period between 9-11 and 7-7, the immediate response would be, we're a peace-loving people. That was a quote from the message. (laughs) (laughs) We are a peace-loving people. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So for those who don't know, let's just take a tiny little aside and tell them about this amazing film. So was it like 1973, I think? It's a film by the director Mustafa Aqad, who actually was killed in Libya bombings. God rest his soul. Yeah, three years ago. Um, and he made two very iconic films, the most well-known and beloved and watched by every Muslim uh, above a certain age. <laughs> it's called The Message. And it's about the story of the origin of Islam, basically. Like, how did Muhammad Sallam begin his prophethood, his life in the Arabian Peninsula at the time and it's just full of these amazing quotable lines and it's also extra (laughs) iconic for a film that he shot like he made an English language version and he concurrently made an Arabic language version so interesting and they are both amazing films like you know often you'd think with things like that that you know one of them's going to be a bit better than the other one Mm -hmm. but I've watched both and I've loved both and I've (laughs) rewatched and (laughs) rewatched so yeah I did not know there was an Arabic version. I need, oh, feel like I need yeah. to like go track this down. Although I don't understand Arabic, so I feel like I'll have a subpar experience. You'll get it. If you are familiar with the English, you'll be able to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Also, can mm-hmm. I just share, if you don't mind, Khadija, can I share, when I first approached Khadija to do this interview a few months ago, oh, you had just listened to our first episode where I talked about being able to quote the message line for line <laughs> and you texted me saying oh my god me too and then we had this great conversation for the next three days where we just quoted the message at it's each amazing. other and it was just it was oh i felt so seen khadija yeah <laughs> i felt so, I felt so seen <laughs> these khadijas seeing each other 
<laughs> I feel left out. <laughs> but it's also worth understanding that, like, in terms of Muslim media, for a long time, it literally was all we had. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Right. There's so much now. And compared to today, there's such a saturation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But then it was like, this is what it is. <laughs> You're just going to sit down and watch it like or lump it. <laughs> it was a three-hour film, but every minute of it was riveting. <laughs> they were there under the oh, vultures dear. and you let them escape you. <laughs> yes. Okay, we will stop that there <laughs> and and get back to darker, darker things. Yeah, right. So, Because <laughs> we could do this all night. Yeah, it was a good release of tension, though, I think. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Um, so we're peace-loving people. And, um, we are. <laughs> so that was, you know, the classic response that, you know, Islam is all about peace. I don't know if you guys remember, when the sheets are coming out. Oh, yeah. They're all oh, about yeah. Islam is peace and Muslims, you know, submission. And this is the, and, and emphasizing, you know, I have vivid memories of being at events where, you know, the ayahs that were chosen mm-hmm. um, to open the event were ones that emphasize our belief in all the prophets of Allah, all the prophets I mentioned in the Bible. And there was this real sort of almost... <laughs> urgency like a universalism right right that we we had the same are you you know the hadith about and again i'm not you know this is our tradition and you know they are things that i'm not suggesting that we shouldn't we should shun these uh scriptures or these parts of scriptures at all they're all very very important to us and who we are but they were almost exclusively being used so the ayah about for instance um whoever kills uh one person it's as if they've killed all of humanity and it's important right it's very important we do need to say and people were genuinely asking but it was like Mm. on repeat and i understand why I, I do genuinely understand why, but I think the discourse shifted a little bit post seven seven, where there was almost like this realization that you know what, there has been some denial, there is some vulnerability in our communities, and if we don't introspect and look at why our young people, some of our young people, a smaller proportion of them as they are, are getting involved in such awful, awful behaviors, then there's a lot more at stake than just that, you know, um, because people could see where things were going in terms of political discourse and the law and how that was going to continue to really get serious and impeding on and the existence of all of us. So yeah, there was there was much more, I think, in discourse with the government, there was much more acknowledgement that, yeah, okay, we do have problems in our communities. And what that did was open the door to buy-in in our communities for things like the prevent strategy. I am glad you've gone there. Now. <laughs> yeah, let's, so I've been waiting for us to have this conversation because Khadija, uh, Khadija K keeps bringing up prevent and I keep being like but what is it exactly and then I feel like it's a long conversation that we need to have properly and I've told her wait till we talk to Khadija and she'll tell us everything (laughs) yes right okay you know this is the really interesting thing about prevent is that actually it's very difficult to define and I think that's one of its I think that's very deliberate on the part of its architects and the personnel who are involved in it and the governments who have pushed it it's very amorphous and difficult to define and I think um a very frequent retort that its critics have thrown back at them is that's not prevent that's something 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 right mm. that's not really prevent you don't understand what prevent is you're just bigoted and wanting to undermine our security and nobody really you know what is prevent right when it started off it was very much heralded as you know it came out of this whole exercise where the government uh brought on board a bunch of muslim voices from various activist spaces, from academic spaces, from policy spaces, and said, oh, well, we're going to thrash out what the problems are, okay, with extremism in our communities. And very much, very squarely, very clearly, the emphasis being on Muslim communities, right? Which is very far removed from the kind of discussion, kind of presentation that Prevent has today. But then it was like, yeah, what are the problems of Muslim communities 
around extremism and how are we going to understand them and how can we solve? So there's this whole exercise, I think around uh, just after 7-7, where these people were brought on board to various working groups and were supposedly listened to. A very interesting thing that came out of that is a whole document of recommendations, which was basically binned by the government. And mm. they went ahead and pushed forward with this idea of prevent that they'd really sort of pre, that was later sort of revealed in, in, in documents that were leaked, um, had been preconceived, right? So it was very much a cosmetic exercise where people were brought on board and to let off steam, to feel as though they were being listened to. But then the prevent strategy that was conceived by the government was then pushed ahead. And the idea behind it is that, so it's, it, it presents itself in a very innocuous way, right? So it, it claims, okay, don't, don't we all want security? Don't we all want to uh, prevent our young people from being um, drawn into dubious and dangerous ways of thinking and behaving? You know, don't we all want to safeguard the vulnerable um, and, and those who are easily influenced? You know, this is, this is something we all want and it's in all of our benefit, right? So the ways that it's done that over the years have shifted and changed and evolved, but it's very much consistently been associated with surveillance in, in various shapes and forms with this idea of what's referred to as pre-crime. So how do we prevent terrorism, violent extremism, as it's called, before it happens. I mean, that necessitates a form of profiling, doesn't it? Because yeah. mm. what it means is that we've got to, who, who, who do we think is likely or is potentially going to be drawn into these behaviours, right? How do we define that? We've got to look at certain features and characteristics. So we're pathologizing our Muslim communities, basically, right? I'm just flabbergasted at the idea that this word that you just used pre-crime was something mm -hmm. that was actually put into like legal documents and policy by an actual government yeah i don't know actually like on one hand it. it's so ridiculous like <laughs> i mean right. so many yeah. of the things that happened in the last 20 years are ridiculous but like i think we forget to mention how ridiculous and absurd mm -hmm. they are because we've kind of become inured to having to deal with them but it's so mm. ridiculous like i just wanted to take a moment <laughs> to point out how completely absurd that is yeah especially when you consider like now we are many years into prevent and we have so many examples of how it's played out and who it's played out against hopefully Khadija, you'll be able to tell us about that as well yeah. like who is responsible for this pre-crime you know three-year-olds yeah so, so prevent yeah it's been around for like what 15 odd years now and it's it's sort of embedded in, in wider counterterrorism strategies and policies so it, it works in parallel with and interconnectedly with other processes but ever since 2015 a really um important development was implemented which is what was known as the prevent duty so it became an obligation on public bodies so this is like schools and hospitals universities, these kinds of places. And also actually it seeped into the private sector in, in, in various ways. And it's been, I mean, one of the things that people are expecting to imagine in the coming months is that it's going to become an obligation within the private sector. For people, people in positions of responsibility to keep an eye out, basically, the word that's used is to have due regard for people uh, at risk of being drawn to violent extremism. So what it's doing is asking of people like teachers, doctors, nurses, you know, counsellors, people in very trusted positions of care to keep an eye out for signs of radicalisation among people in their care and really how it equips them to do that. Preschool carers too. Yeah, preschool, yeah, preschool. we're talking about preschool all the way through. We're talking, you know, not even preschool, you know, there are stories of things that have happened in labour wards. Where really? People have been giving birth, people being raided in those spaces. Oh my God. Right? Wow. So it is what critics call a cradle to the grave situation. And 
And one of the, I mean, okay, so we're talking people who's, you know, when you train as a teacher, really, it's not on your radar that you're going to be expected to be the eyes and ears of the state. Mm. And how does that work then, that you have people who already in the public sector are hugely, hugely overburdened administratively, emotionally, professionally, uh, and then have this extra layer of responsibility that really is incongruous, firstly, with, with their roles. Because mm. if you think about, again, if we're talking about teachers, doctors, counsellors, these are people who people go trust with, with very vulnerable um, experiences mm. and feelings. It conflicts with their duty to safeguard in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on top of that, the way that they're equipped to then play this role is farcical. There have been leaks of the training that people receive in order to carry out this duty. And it's beyond a joke, actually. You know, again, this this idea of profiling plays a big role in it. You know, how can you tell that somebody, for, you know, it gives you case studies, for instance. So it will give you things like uh, an example of, you know, X person uh, has, has become a bit of a recluse recently and isn't socialising with friends or family. You know, they've started going to the mosque a bit more. Good Lord. Do you, A, report them obvious. to... <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> So there's stuff like that, right? There's, you know, even things like in the imagery. You know, it's not just in the, in the actual verbal content of these mm. training operations. It's like the kinds of images that are used, the way that they're juxtaposed, the kinds of examples that are given about supposed sort of far-right case studies vis-a-vis Muslim case studies. There are so many levels from which it can be critiqued and from which it's on one level farcical, but also very, very dangerous and very worrying. Mm. And there have been so many miscarriages that we hear about. And there have been so many false referrals and people whose lives, you know, the thing about this kind of thing is that, you know, you'll, again, you'll get a response from people who are involved. will say things like, oh, well, you know, a referral doesn't mean anything, doesn't stay in your record. Well, it's fine for you to say that if you're not the person who might ever be referred, right? But people who are referred or who, who are impacted by this policy in one way or another, who are profiled, or who are threatened with referral, or who, who just have to live their daily lives with it at the back of their mind mm. and, and have to, you know, moderate the way they behave, um, have to tell their children not to use certain words or say certain things in certain contexts, mm. you know, it absolutely impacts them whether or not they're, you know, its very existence yeah. has an insidious and deep-seated impact on the daily lives of Muslims. The, the, the freedom of expression, the freedom to just be who they are, mm. the, the freedom of young people to just explore, ask questions, yeah. you know, the very act of asking a question in class, you know, a lot of Again, so a lot of this prevent stuff is linked with the idea of the promotion of British values, which is a very big sort of hobby horse of recent governments, including this current one. And that is very explicitly associated with ideas around loyalty, around nationalism. And, you know, you can't separate it from discourses around border control and immigration. You can't separate it from securitization, as I say. So people living through that, you know, mm. it's it's very heavy having to police yourself, police how you express yourself, police the kinds of questions that you ask. Again, you know, it's it's really, um, it's just struck me as I'm speaking, when we started off this conversation, I was talking about who I was on the 10th of September. You know, it, I, I wasn't one of those people who sort of, whose Muslim identity wasn't a, a central part of me prior to 9-11, and then I suddenly discovered it. No, it was, I, I've always, you know, I was raised in a, in a, a very um, religious household, and um, it's always been part of who I am. But I definitely didn't have this dark cloud of, you know, mm. what can I say where and when hanging over yeah. me. And young people today absolutely have that, whether or not they're religious, actually. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they just have a Muslim name or they look conspicuous or they're brown or whatever it is, that then they have that dark cloud and over that, them. And that freedom to just grow up without having to 
second guess about how you are perceived or to... how what you say is yeah yeah and it's such a basic right of childhood it's just right. we want children no matter who they are to be free to you know grow and learn and make mistakes and explore and mm. not have to worry about all the adult things that you mm. have to yeah. and i mean this is something that adults shouldn't even have to worry about mm. but like to see it happening to children and honestly like this is so shocking to me like i knew something about the broad strokes of prevent but i don't know if i should be shocked that it's worse where you are than where we are where we kind of is think it of ourselves in this aspect there's no question that it's worse okay because like i don't think so obviously i haven't gone through you know elementary and high school i was already finishing up high school in 9-11 and i think there's definitely a lot of bullying of children not just by their fellow students but by teachers for their faith there's a lot of you know institutional discrimination absolutely like i was in 12th grade actually got called out by one of my vice principals for wearing a hat inside of uh, school and it became like a huge administrative issue even though i was the only kid in the whole school who wore hijab and everybody knew me and they knew i covered my head every day you know but it just became a thing like they called my parents they called me to the principal's office so like i'm not saying that we're not having some of these types of things here. And I don't know in what ways it's gotten worse in the 20 years which, that I haven't been in school here. But we definitely don't have this kind of mm -hmm. institutionalized, explicit, aggressive policing of like what people are doing inside their homes, what they're, you know, I mean, yeah. I think it's more subtle. It's less uh, explicitly spoken. It's not mm -hmm. as explicitly written into policy. And so I, I do find it shocking, actually. I, I guess Americans always like to think that we're the center of everything. And and because 9-11 was kind of the catalyst for a lot of this getting worse, I think a lot of times we think of the way that Islamophobia exploded. And because we were the ones who like started the wars, we kind of think of ourselves as like the epicenter of that. And I think we are in some ways, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised that like the, the birthplace of Orientalism <laughs> and anti-Muslim sentiment kind oh, of... Not to be outdone, are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Y'all, you know, you have to take it to the utmost level, I guess. But I, I think also in some ways that the US is ahead in terms of the nationalist indoctrination, which is much more intense in the US than it is here. And thus mm. the whole, you know, British values thing. When I grew up, that indoctrination came through football if you had it. And, yeah. you know, I'm ashamed to admit for a few years I did have it. <laughs> but that idea of countering quote-unquote radicalization or any kind of forward leap to terrorism through indoctrinating them with nationalist sentiments, it's that's new. something that I feel like is, yeah, is perhaps even modelled from US policies. And don't forget so. that the US has CVE, which was mm -hmm. modelled on Prevent. <laughs> so, Well, that's the thing, right? We do have CVE, but I don't mm -hmm. think that it it's as intense it's terrible it's very yeah. insidious it's very bad but i'm just saying like it is not operating on the same level mm. with mm -hmm. invasiveness into people's mm. everyday lives the way that prevent is from yeah. your description i feel Tanisha. that part of that is also because we didn't have any existing machinery the way that you have had since 9 11 in that kind of very intense surveillance and again just the the level of indoctrination is it's it's already present in your curricula in a way that it isn't 
or wasn't as present in ours, but it's kind of had to be pushed in in a very short time. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are um, uncomfortable with it. So people beyond, mm-hmm. you know, Muslim communities are uncomfortable with it, but it's not just, you know, people who critique the whole idea of British values. Mm. It's it's not a very British way of doing things, right? We're not. Right. I mean, I think um, the British are very cynical about these things. We are not sure. interested in... Yeah. So um, you get people mocking and scorning, you know, even things right. like the whole frenzy around wearing poppies. You know, there's mm. always high profile critics who have nothing to do with anything who will say um, yeah what, what is this I mean, this isn't it's very british to be extremely cynical about anything the government wants you to do right <laughs> right. Like, right no leave us alone <laughs> you know there's a reason <laughs> why we aren't a particularly religious country as well mm-hmm. that it's just that's a very british mm-hmm. thing so to then be mm-hmm. told that the british values that you actually do kind of have i mean we're all snobby british people in our own way right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but to then be told you're doing your britishness wrong right that's it because the government <laughs> ties it very directly mm. to loyalty and acquiescence to their securitization agenda. Which right? is so un-British. Right. So your <laughs> dissent, which is supposedly a British thing, right? Yeah. I mean, Magna Carta, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> your dissent is portrayed as, you know, disloyalty. And mm. yeah, and, and again, it marries up with this whole idea of, you know, but where is your loyalty? Is it to the Ummah first? Or is it to Britain? And citizenship is a privilege, it's not mm. a right. Again, you know, we, we can talk about the whole deprivation of citizenship thing, yeah. oh, which gosh. is really terrifying. Mm. To underline, I just think we cannot, we, and we do not have the luxury of taking all of these processes on their own. We have to contextualise them and recognise and appreciate how they're all interlinked and work together and support yeah. and buttress one another. Absolutely. And so what I'm getting from what you're saying is that this was a rise in this kind of I guess you would call it like nationalistic discourse and rhetoric in a way that you've never really seen it before. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think here we did have that nationalistic discourse, but it was much more sort of subtle and baked into pretty much everything around us. It was Mm -hmm. something that you wouldn't notice unless Mm -hmm. you, you know, like me who came into the US at 11, I was a little shocked by it coming from a country that is much more like England, I think, Mm -hmm. in this, you know, I was coming from Canada, where like, you didn't really mention who you're going to vote for. You didn't talk about your party as something that you were like affiliated with over generations, the way like when we moved here to North Carolina in 1998, people were like, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat. And I was like, really? Like, you're just going to say that? Like, you have such strong feelings about your party? It's so alien, isn't it? Like, it's rude to ask and it's rude to tell, right? Right. So that was definitely a difference. But I think also, in addition to that, like, extreme and sort of nativist right-wing nationalism is on the rise around the world. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. on the rise here, unfortunately, in a way that's different from before. And I think... There's also a rise of mainstream criticism of the American state that I've seen in the last five or six years that I've never seen before. So that is actually a change here in the sense that like people who passively went along with whatever the government did, especially like people in the dominant majority, some of those people are actually changing their tune a little bit. And there is less of this uncritical acceptance that like everything that our country does is good Mm -hmm. but it's like very it's very polarized right so like Mm -hmm. there's a segment of the population that's like oh actually america isn't the greatest country in the world you've been lying to us this whole time and we have so much blood on our hands and then there's like the segment of us who kind of always knew that and we were just like living quietly (laughs) under (laughs) under all the weight of that knowledge and then there are the people who are like you know make america great again and they're kind of 
wanting to go back to this fictionalized history of this white nationalist heaven utopia. I mean, this is Brexit yeah. Britain, right? It's trying to reclaim your imperial dreams. All about the blue passports. Right. <laughs> and so we have that flavor of Americans as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not just here. And it's not just in Western countries. Look at what's happening in India, right? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely on the global scale. Yeah. So we've covered so much ground in such a mm-hmm. short time. Amazing. So with all of the ways that Muslim identity is under siege from every side at every age, do you have any thoughts about why identity politics has become such a hobby horse for the right wing? And given that context was titling your book, which is called mm-hmm. Muslim Identity Politics, was that partially an effort to reclaim that term from bigots and alarmists and can we even reclaim it at this point Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think there's no need to get sort of obsessed or bogged down with terms but i think there was a little bit of that in me Mm. so yeah identity politics it's it's almost used in a very uh playground type name calling tone right Mm. it's not even it's just thrown out there you know it's often very loaded with meaning nobody ever defines it Nobody ever says what they mean. It can mean different things for different people. Or it's lost all meaning, right? It has lost all meaning. It reminds me of cancel culture. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, um, that's just identity politics. Ha ha, snigger, snigger. Okay, but what do you mean by that, right? And I think one of the questions that has constantly bothered me in my work and uh, and preoccupied me, and and this is certainly something that has been on my mind throughout my my career, if you'd like to call it that, over the past 20 years. So since 9-11, this constant... You know, there is a very regular theme that comes up in uh, politics and in the media around the idea of Muslim entryism. And by that, I mean, you know, subversive political behavior. Muslims, how dare they enter politics as Muslims? How dare they have their own agenda? This means that they want to destroy us from within. This means they have ulterior motives. And this means that they want to undermine our democratic processes. Don't believe them. It's double speak. They say one thing Mm. to you, and then behind closed doors, they say something else, right? There have been countless documentaries. I'm sure um, you're aware of things like, I don't know, what's it called? Undercover Mosque that I think had a couple of episodes on uh, dispatches on Channel 4. Uh, People infiltrating organizations, people infiltrating uh, mosques and and, uh, journalists basically making a career out of this whole idea that any Muslim who wants to engage in the public sphere is necessarily some kind of Trojan horse, to use, Mm -hmm. again, a a phrase Mm -hmm. that really has has taken on a life of its own now. And I think... I want to note, just a couple days ago, Ilhan Omar got Mm -hmm. called or implied that that she was a suicide bomber by one of her colleagues in the House of Representatives of the United States. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. So that's a thing that just happened a couple days ago. And it's a thing we have to live with. Anyway, go on. Sure. It's a thing thing we absolutely have to live with, you know? Yeah. From people, you know, again, going back to sort of the experiences absolutely in the wake of of 7-7, I remember very clearly when I finally plucked up the courage to go on the tube a few days after 7-7, I had to be very overt and very clear about where I was putting mm-hmm. my bag, okay? Yeah. To be firmly on my lap. I had to be holding mm-hmm. it. I had to be smiling, yeah? I'm very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yep. I couldn't be nervous. I couldn't be, you know, stressed. I couldn't. I had to be, you know, friendly to the people around me. Yeah. Couldn't be looking at my couldn't watch. Fidget. I mean, for months after, I think even for at least a full year after that, even carrying a backpack yeah. was like a no-no. Yeah, you had to definitely stop and think, do I want to do mm-hmm. this? Who am I going to be with? Where am I going? You know, what, what is the train going to be full or empty? Who am I, you know, all mm. these things you have to And having in. like a halo of empty seats around mm. you. 
right. that happened a lot. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. it was... Um... The bus would be full, but no one would sit next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I was saying about... I mean, what I mean about that is that um, this idea of suspicion, right? So mm. any Muslim carrying a rucksack, what does that mean, right? Mm. And what does that mean for how they're perceived and how they carry themselves? Okay, so if we're talking about sort of in not just people engaging in uh, sort of uh, electoral politics or putting themselves up for office, but people engaging in lobby groups. We have lobby groups of all kinds, of all shapes and sizes. We have pressure groups of all kinds and shapes and sizes, right? So naturally, there are Muslim organizations, there are Muslim organizations that wish to influence the political trajectory of our country, as there are Jewish organizations, Christian organizations, Hindu organizations, right? And atheist mm-hmm. organizations and, and organizations of no religion, but, you know, of other, of other persuasions, right? Or anyone with a cause. All right. So the idea isn't to say that, I mean, basically my point is that um, whether or not that is a good strategy for the Muslim community is an internal conversation for us to have within our communities. However, that doesn't take away from the fact that anybody who wishes to enter into the political space or the public space as a Muslim or as an organisation with, with a Muslim flavour, with a Muslim on its sleeve, has every right to do that. So we can have our discussions among ourselves about, oh, is that a good idea? Is there a better way of doing it? Should they enter into alliance with other people? That's a complete aside. The point is they have every right to do it without being suspected and associated and their past being scoured and any connections they might have with any international Muslim bodies or governments uh, being thrown out for consumption by media vultures. Right. So really, this is where I'm coming from with this idea of Muslim identity politics. So to me, it's it's like, yeah, people do organize as Muslims and they do enter politics as Muslims, whether it's, you know, with, with the faith inspiring what they choose to do or simply as people who carry a Muslim name. There's a huge spectrum out there and there's huge variance out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially when I was writing this, but yeah, I think it's persistent. There is nowhere near enough depth or nuance in our appreciation of this. It's a very hostile and unforgiving environment for anybody who not only is Muslim, but who might be perceived as Muslim, or who might associate with somebody who's Muslim. It is absolutely, extremely, the the bars for acceptance, or, or the yardsticks by which they are judged, are just brutal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But also, I think, responses to that from some Muslims have been to downplay their Muslimness, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that troubles me, because I think, where are we headed with that? Right. Why Why should we have to do that? And so, yeah, I think that, again, that comes back to, I guess, the title, the way I present my research, that, sure, people are, as long as there is discrimination, prejudice and inequality that is experienced by Muslims because of their Muslimness, there will continue to be Muslim identity politics, like Olympic guys, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And the way that we deal with it as society needs to change, needs to become far more honest and, you know, to carry the integrity that we claim to have as a supposedly democratic society. Um, you know, we're we're far from that. So I could carry on. But I think I'm yeah. <laughs> Very well said. And I would also like to point out that whether you label your politics as identity politics or not, pretty much all politics all are politics identity is, politics. Yeah. yeah. It's just that there are certain groups who can be their full selves with all of the parts of them that they are representing in the world. And because they are part of, you know, the power structures or because they are not racialized um, in the same way that certain other groups are, they can get away with bringing their full selves. 100%. And, and as they should, we should all be able to bring our full selves. But 100%. the fact that our, uh, you know, living our identities and being who we are and bringing that into public sphere, the whole reason that's stigmatized is because of the assumptions and the suspicions and the stereotypes and the racism people hold against us, it's not because of who we are. And it's not because we shouldn't be being ourselves. Yeah. 
And I, I think this necessarily comes down to whiteness, right? And the hegemony that it carries that, you Absolutely. know, people, you know, society, what is normal in society, what is the baseline to society in people's minds means something and looks in a particular way. And things that depart from that are seen as threatening or as yes. subversive or as, as other Right. So um, and Muslims have to contend with that and have to navigate that. And that already places them on the back foot in many ways, having to constantly justify themselves, why they choose to do something. Even very basic things as, you know, name pronunciation. Right. Which should be a given in this supposedly multicultural, diverse society that we live in. But it's not. And is this what you mean by the equality gap? Right, yeah. So the idea of the equality gap really was a way of summarizing some of the issues that I unpicked in, in my analysis. of. So, so in my book, what I do is I look at the evolution of what I call Muslim identity politics, which is the evolution of Muslim activism and advocacy for themselves to the state, right? And I use this term equality gap to really summarize the issues that Muslims were campaigning on, campaigning around. So inequalities that they were experiencing either because they were written into law, so historically the law was written with a certain type of Christian in mind as normative and mm-hmm. the assumption of whiteness again. And with the empire, basically, just being the empire, really. Um, and so... <laughs> I like how that just sums it up. Yes, the Doing empire. Doing a thing. Yeah. <laughs> the so... empire just being the empire. <laughs> so, so all of that impacts on how our laws have evolved and precedent, legal precedent has, has developed, right? So... For Muslim activists, if you want to call them that, or community leaders, and other words, you know, they all they all carry various connotations and baggages. But I think it's a fair term to use again for people who are being vocal and seeking to converse with the government and to represent our communities from the sort of 1960s onwards. There were various things that they were experiencing in seeking seeking recourse in the law. They were feeling that they weren't being catered to because, as I say, the law wasn't written with them in mind. And so that's one aspect of the equality gap but there are other aspects which are institutional right which might not necessarily be written in the law but people experience so if we talk about institutional racism institutional Islamophobia if we talk about again in the post 9-11 context there are hard legal developments but then there are softer sort of policy uh, directions Mm. that impact Muslims so stuff like prevent for instance so all of these I really summarized as this idea of an equality gap that how 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 are Muslims in particular specifically being prevented from access to even-handedness and equality in their experience in, as living in the UK. Mm. And is there, like, what do you think the solution is? And what's the way that we can close that gap, do you think? Because it's definitely not only in the UK. I no, think. it's not. I mean, you know, yeah. obviously the study was specifically in the UK, but of course there are overlaps with, with experiences of Muslims in the continent. You know, the UK looks to the continent as, as much as we like to say that we don't um, because of the whole <laughs> Brexit thing, but we do. Uh, and, to, and across the Atlantic. Can I just um, say, I've never heard someone use the continent in a real conversation before, so I'm very <laughs> I feel like I'm in a, J- a Jane Austen book. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's totally unrelated. But <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm so chuffed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel properly British now. Can somebody tell? <laughs> somebody tell them? <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. I use it all the time. <laughs> I guess no one can accuse you of not being a real British person now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. As you were saying. <laughs> so, um, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, how can we close it? Okay, so I'm less concerned. I, you know what? I'm, and, and I guess this is interesting. And I, I, it's something that I really, um, I feel I can say in this space. And I probably wouldn't be able to say it elsewhere. Or wouldn't feel comfortable necessarily saying it elsewhere. Because I'm here, you know, I'm talking not just from a professional perspective, but from a personal perspective. And faith plays a big role in them, right? If, if you look at our tradition, 
our faith tradition, we know that there is always going to be oppression and there is always going to be injustice. And so how is it going to close? You know, I'm less concerned about that because that's in the hands of Allah than I am about in what role we play. Mm. And um, and that's what we're going to be held accountable at the end of the day. So mm. we are here to name these injustices and to expose them and to figure out ways of alleviating the suffering, the pain that they cause people. And yeah, sure, um, exploring ways to narrow that gap if we want to talk about it. But ultimately, you know, Allah is going to deliver justice. And that's not something that we have in our hands. But we have mm. full faith mm. that inshallah, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to happen, whether it's through our work or through somebody else's um, that that's sort of helps to bring that about. But ultimately, it's in the hands of Allah. Very, very well said. Yeah, yeah I, I agree 100%. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the, the, the short term, the prospects aren't great. I think the direction, you know, globally that governments are going towards are really quite concerning, terrifying in many ways. Yeah. And I suppose one of the causes for hope that I see anyway are the solidarities that people are building in response. So I, there is a polarisation, absolutely. And there is an entrenchment within that polarisation. Uh, you know, people are becoming very fixed and very tribalistic about the positions that they're taking. But within that, I think there is more, in particular among Muslim communities, I think I would say because that they are the communities that I'm most in tune with, there there is a willingness and an appreciation of the need to build deep solidarities with others mm-hmm. uh, to resist. And I think that's refreshing. Um, I think that's also a, a very much in contrast with the more sort of bowed heads type of resistance we saw immediately post 9-11. I think there is yeah. much more of an upbeat confidence about the resistance that we are seeing today. And that's something to celebrate and to take pride in. And it's a, a sign of growth. Yeah, we've uh, we've been forged by the fire. We're a little bit stronger now. Yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah, I think that's a really yeah. good way of putting it. And there's still, you know, there are many, you know, we have much more growth to do. But uh, for sure, we have been through a lot, uh, you know, as communities. And, you know, in particular, the generation younger than us and the Zoomers, they carry a lot on their shoulders. Did you just say Zoomers? I said Zoomers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the difference is between Gen Z and Zoomers. Oh yeah, what is is that a different generation or is it the same? Uh, the Zoomers are a bit younger. Oh. Really, are they two discreet generations? I, I actually, know I don't know. I think we'll have to wait twenty years until we figure it out. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> As always, it's a it's a fake category, <laughs> a fake category, but also a real thing at the same time. Yeah, I don't know, kind of like identity Absolutely. politics. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You brought it back full circle. Good job. (laughs) So, you know, I'm so glad that you kind of brought us back to this somewhat more. I mean, in some ways it's somber, but at the same time, like slightly hopeful perspective. And on that note, could you tell us something that you're working on right now or that you're, you know, excited about right now? Yeah. So uh, I don't want to, I don't want to dampen the mood. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I suppose one of the things I'm I'm working on at the moment is uh, exploring there are, there are two two strands what I'm looking at. One of them is women's activism in mm-hmm. uh, Muslim spaces. And nice. I think this links quite nicely with some of the discussions we've had because women's activism has been weaponized in many ways by governments and by the whole CDE industry of countering violent extremism or PVE or whatever you want to call it. It has many names. It's been really weaponized by it in a way that paints Muslim women in very rigid, uh, predefined roles and Muslim men oh, yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. what it's done is it's piggybacked over very real issues of inequality and injustice that happen in our communities that we need to address. But we need to address them on our own terms, in our own spaces, in our own time. 
And when I say that, I don't mean to say to be sluggish about how we address them. They are urgent issues. So we're talking about, you know, violence against women or uh, abuse in its various forms to sort of unequal access to community spaces for women, you know, a lack of investment in women. There are many, many issues and there are many reasons for them. Yeah, there are many, you know, if we want to understand the history, uh, there are many, many reasons for that, for why we are where we are. But I think one of the things that I and many others um, who I work with or interact with um, on a personal professional level, um, one of the many issues that we're bothered by and, and really um, are quite affronted by is the way that these issues have suddenly become very fashionable and are being bandied about uh, by people from within this uh, PVE industry. And it's quite clear that it's not being done with the interests of Muslim women um, at heart. So that's one area that I've had bubbling away for a while and I've been working mm-hmm. on. So it's out. an old imperial tool, in fact. It is. Uh, you know, Absolutely. focusing on these types of problems and using them as the way to pathologize a whole population that then needs yeah. white people to come in and save them from themselves and from each other. Yeah, and very disingenuous. I mean, I think, um, yeah. you know, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, how colonial personalities in, in Egypt, for instance, from, from, from England, uh, would champion women's political rights in Egypt but would also oppose women's suffrage back home. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of other examples. There's so many. There's so many. We mm. have tons from South Asia as well. Yeah. Maybe that will be a new series we can do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly want to do a second season of this podcast. It's just called Orientalism. I think you guys should. There'll be so much to talk about. I would so be down for listening to that. The... Maybe we can have you back for that, Peter. I'd love that. I would really love it. It's, it's such an honor speaking to you guys. Oh, same here. This has been really great. And I feel like there were so many moments where we could have like dug in deeper to so many of the topics, except that we would be here for like eight hours. And then you don't want to be here for that long. (laughs) Our listeners don't want to listen to an episode that long. (laughs) But thank you so much. No, but I hope we have many more opportunities to, you know, meet whether it's virtually or in person because... uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so much fun chatting with you guys. And I think it's really, um, you know, it's a wavelength of conversation that we just don't get. It's very um, energizing. Yeah. I've enjoyed it very much. I did too. Me too. So now that we've wound our energy down, (laughs) where can people find you on the internet and on social media? Mainly Twitter, basically. At Dr. K. Elshayal. And where can people find us, Anissa? Uh, You can find us on Twitter at MipsPod. That's M-I-P-S-P-O-D. And you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments and feedback. And your stories, we're still soliciting any stories you want to share, whether it's about, you know, any of the topics that we've discussed and your experiences, and we will read them on air if you give us permission. And you can listen and subscribe to the podcast at musliminplainsight.com. And that's it. Thank you for listening, everybody. Jazakallah once again, Dr. Khadija Al-Shayal for joining us. It has been yes. such a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure's been entirely mine. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been a lovely chat. Same here. I've learned so much. Same. Yeah. Salam alaikum.